the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, Rhymes with Flamethrower. On today's episode, we talk about working in psycho-oncology. Today's episode is absolutely brought to you by Toddler Dance Party. So hi, Rose Vick. Hi. I see you all the time, but it's so wonderful to see you in this setting. And we teach classes together and we see each other all the time, but this kind of informal discussion I think is going to be really fun. Absolutely. And I've told other people that I think my favorite part of this is just learning things about people that I know pretty well, but there's just always something about people that you don't exactly know all their history. And so this has been really fun getting to know people. I had this crazy idea back in... I don't know when it was, several months ago, where I was like, oh my gosh, we could do a podcast and we could talk to people who work in different places. And you graciously said, do that. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a fantastic idea. Yeah. So it's been really, and I desperately and wanted to be some sort of podcaster. I've told Jody since I've been doing all this, I was like, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to become a full-time podcaster because it's so (laughs) fun. She's like, no, you're not. You're not doing that at all. But it's been really fun to just sit down and do this and have these, I think, really important discussions and cool discussions in a way that's not us standing in front of a room, just talking to people. And I love that it's people who have boots on the ground doing the work and not us like saying, and this is what it's like to do this, even though I don't have any idea what it is to do that. So it's really nice to have those people and have connections with those people to come in and be able to talk about those things in a really kind of informal way. Because it's much easier to, I think, have a one-on-one conversation than it is to come into a room of people and talk. And so it's nice to be able to do these kinds of things. So thank you for agreeing to do this, because I think you have a really cool path that a lot of people might be really interested in from the work that you do with patients, but also I think just your teaching, your work in academia, and why you decided to to become a teacher, why you decided to get a PhD, like all those kinds of things. I think you have a really interesting career path that I think people could learn a lot from that. So I'm so glad you decided to do this. So thank you for helping out and joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you, yes, for this amazing idea. We've done some versions of this in the past in this course, but I love the idea of translating it to podcast medium because I think it's a great way for people to listen in and listen to a more conversational approach to these topics. So it just seemed to fit pretty well with the content. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited to be here. And I love this class and I love teaching this class with you because it is such a fun class. It's really like a lot of nuts and bolts about practice, which is so important and where you're going to be working and and the people you're going to be working with really make the difference in are you happy or do you stay in that job a long time do you feel fulfilled in what you do and so i'm just glad we get to do that and i love teaching with you it's super fun same yes so as i've kind of with everyone how did you get into nursing and how did you become a nurse practitioner, and how did you start working with the patient population that you work with and all that kind of stuff? All right. So you mentioned my career path, and there's some a few zigs and zags, so stick with me. I, from probably high school, had to do a career, um, this is going way back, right? Like 
he didn't mean that far back. In high school, I had to do a career report and I knew I wanted to do something in mental health. And at that time, researched PhD, clinical psychology. In high school, you did that? Yes. Really? Yes. yes. For biology too. We had to... Like a, okay, were you a sophomore or a junior when this happened? Uh, junior, I think. Oh my God, you've always had your life together. No. Mine's been such a disaster from no, day No, 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 definitely not. I knew I wanted to do something in mental health. I just did some research and, and realized there were PsyDs and PhDs in psychology, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to work with kids. So went to college and wanted to do something music, something psychology, didn't know where I would land. As what to... music? Like music theory, music performance? Music, music performance at Belmont. But I quickly learned I was... Do you I sing? Was... Do you play an instrument? <laughs> Yes. Really? But I quickly learned I was not you... super talented. So Oh stop. <laughs> in in the world, in the Nashville world of where everyone is super talented. So music became just for fun. We Do you to... sing? Yes. Oh my gosh. The so... revelations that happen on this podcast. <laughs> I love it. So came to Belmont thinking I would do something psychology major minor, but wanted to do mental health. Had really great faculty there that supported the track and the idea of doing a PhD in psychology. And so that was my path from pretty early on was I'm going to do a PhD in clinical psychology. And I felt pretty set in that and decided after I graduated, rather than applying to programs right away, I would get a little bit of experience and I worked here at Vanderbilt, actually on, on Peabody in some different research labs. I worked with the meta-analysis guru, Mark Lipsy, who like literally wrote the book on meta-analysis and wow. learned all things meta-analysis, coding for him in these big studies. And so had a lot of fun learning a lot of sort of researchy and statistics type things and thought I was going to apply to PhD psychology programs and met a lot of people who were doing a PhD in clinical psychology here at Bandy and really, really competitive program. And from talking to them and seeing what that path looked like and where it took you, and there's kind of one place it takes you, that didn't feel like such a fit for me anymore. Okay. Thinking about the day-to-day -day of that work, I started thinking, I'm just not sure that I want to go into academia. I'm not sure that I want to take all the steps that this path requires for employment in your career. So someone that I worked with at Vanderbilt at Peabody said she was going to apply to Vanderbilt's Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Program. And I said, what are you talking about? What is that? You've, you've blown my career path completely yes. out of the water. And she was explaining to me why she wanted to go this route. And I didn't know what it was. And I had never thought nursing. I had always thought mental health. So it was totally mind-blowing to think about nursing period and to think about something different other than mm -hmm. clinical psychology but it made so much sense because whereas I felt like a PhD in clinical psychology took me in one route and you have to work really hard and you have to be really good at this one thing and this one sort of role afterwards in nursing, I could do anything, right? Yeah. I can practice. I can see patients. I can teach. I can still get a PhD. I can do research. So the other piece of this is when I was working there and my grant was ending eventually with Dr. Lipsy. when you look for jobs in this town, everybody wants a nurse. Even if it was research jobs, if it was stats jobs, it was the skill set that I had. 
everybody in healthcare, the healthcare mecca of America wants a nurse. Mm -hmm. So that was another thing that made me think, I guess I need to pay attention to this nursing world and opportunity and take it seriously. So that's when I started looking into Vandy's PMHMP program. Okay. And then I applied. And then I, I finished out another year of working in a couple of research labs over there and got really great experience with some world-renowned researchers over there, but came to Vandy and did the PMHNP program here under Dr. Susie Adams, who was our program director back then. So you finished that program and then you decided, okay, now, now I can practice. And you chose a really interesting population to work with. So talk about that and how that came to fruition. Yeah, so when I was in the program, I remember being, I don't remember which class. It may have been a specialty year class. It may have been, he had, I don't, I don't even remember. But I remember having this epiphany and thinking, I kind of want to work with a specialty population with some medical concerns or issues. And I thought it would be really cool to work with cancer patients just because of all the complexities of that illness and all the things that go into that. And I also thought the same about women's health, infertility. Wouldn't that be interesting to just Mm -hmm. kind of specialize in this area? And it may have been lecturers. I don't even know at this point what inspired me to be interested in those populations, but it was a fleeting thought. And then, but nobody does that. Nobody does that on either side, at least back then. So I just tucked that away and thought, wouldn't that be cool someday? And then I kept getting a job posting while I was in the program, probably late spring semester, early summer semester, I got a job posting and it was in a psycho-oncology program working as a psych NP and I kept deleting it because it was out of state and I was pretty rooted here in Nashville. And so I deleted it probably three times. And then when it was still coming my way... Universe was giving you a sign. Yes, yes. And I took the approach of, well, I I really want to understand this role. I doubt I'm going to move there, but I really want to compare this really different PMHNP role and experience to the kind of traditional community mental health positions I was interviewing for locally to just Mm -hmm. get a feel for what the job and the role looks like in different areas. So I went to an interview and the rest is history. I ended up taking a job and moving and that started my work in psycho-oncology. Okay. So, and that was in Kentucky, Mm -hmm. right? And how long did you do that for? I was there for five years in a big cancer center. Okay. And talk about what was the sort of day-to-day like and what was your patient load and where did you get referrals from? What patients did you see? So I was at a large cancer center and we saw every kind of cancer. So let me start back with kind of what the role was like. So seeing all the adult cancer patients. So I was not in the children's hospital. They had their own services, their own hospital, their own oncology um, providers and center, but ours was adult. And we saw everything. So we had breast surgeons and oncologists. We had radiation oncology. We had neuro-oncology. So lots of brain tumors, lots of colon cancer, lots of lung cancer, Mm -hmm. pancreatic cancer, just all the things. And so it started as one 
CNS in this big cancer center who very quickly realized that we needed to expand the services. She couldn't meet the demand. And there were multiple locations where the cancer center was located. And so we needed people at multiple sites. So Mm -hmm. I was located in a pavilion at the hospital. So we had our outpatient clinic there where patients would come in for chemo or come in for labs. And my office was nestled in there. And there was a pedway that went to the hospital. So I would spend the early part of my day doing hospital consults. So so this is an important part explaining the hospital piece. So we did consult liaison for cancer patients only. So there was a psychiatrist who served the hospital where we worked and he would do all of the cardiology unit. You get a site consult, well, well that physician Acute would delirium, see them. Those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. We, any cancer patients, we were consulted in okay. our behavioral oncology team. So it could be delirium, but it was a cancer patient. Mm-hmm. It could be a brand new diagnosis of leukemia and they're in the hospital. And so we get consulted because of a new diagnosis. The cool thing is I also saw these patients outpatient. So if I had a leukemia patient, for example, who was going to be getting high dose chemo for three weeks, I could follow my patient in the hospital while they were being seen and in the hospital. So it was a pretty unique role. I've not heard of other programs like that where we did the inpatient CL and the outpatient and we could follow our patients back and forth. Yeah, that's really nice. So I could meet you in my office on my outpatient schedule and as a new patient and then I could follow you in the hospital if you get sick or you get admitted for high dose chemo. And the same could happen that I could meet a new patient in the hospital on a consult and then I could follow them out. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I've had other friends who worked CL stuff and a lot of times it's we've just told this patient they have cancer and now they seem sad. We need a psych consult. Did you ever get any of that? Like, oh my gosh, like just learn some bedside manner and learn how to talk to these people. Maybe that never happened, but I I guess maybe it did. I don't know. All the time we would get sort of inappropriate consults. Mm -hmm. And one of the parts of that job that I loved so much was just all that. So there was the direct patient care, but there were all the opportunities to spread mental health awareness among the nursing staff, among the oncology team. I'll give an example. There was a gynoc provider who would admit women into the hospital with cervical cancer and they would go through this radiation treatment where you're hospitalized for a few days. They pack radioactive beads into your cervix and put you in a room where you're in isolation and there's a lead shield around you and no one can stay in your room for more than a couple of minutes and would really be confused and wonder why those people would experience distress. I mean, to us, we laugh and it was like, that makes complete sense why it would make someone really upset and and really frustrated. We're like, well, they need a psych consult because they can't live in complete isolation with radiation shoved inside of them. Yeah. And if you've ever been around, this is a whole other layer to this, but if you've ever been around radiation, it feels really weird and thick and icky. And it's a part of oncology that I didn't know until I went down into the basement of Radonk where these big machines are. There's just a weird energy when you're getting radiation. And so you have that layered on top of the fact that many people who have gynecological cancers have sexual trauma histories and they're going through procedures that are pretty invasive and painful. And then they're, you know, stuck in isolation. So that 
those opportunities to just kind of educate the oncologist about what the patient might be experiencing from their perspective, I really enjoyed that. Well, I'm glad that there was someone like you to be able to do that rather than some doc that like clearly doesn't understand human emotions. Like, I can't understand why they're so upset. Like, I do this every day and tell people they have cancer every day. I think that's why nurses probably should do that kind of work a lot of times. Absolutely. I, there was an oncologist who would, his joke, he said it in a joking way, but he meant it. When patients would cry, I'll call Rose. There was everything from really appropriate use to of the service to I'm really not sure how to manage the emotional stuff. And so I'm glad there's a person here who can talk to patients. Yeah. And I was glad to be available. And also there was a lot of education involved about, there are a lot of ways that you and the nursing staff can be therapeutic and crying is not pathology. Like mm -hmm. crying because you have devastating news or disease progression is not. How dare you emote. Abnormal, yeah. So I, I actually loved that part of it, just working with all the people and it was fun figuring them out. Like mm -hmm. each oncologist, what are their needs? How can I support them yeah. as a provider? Where do they feel like they're less competent? But also, how, how can I advocate for their patients? Sure. And they each have their own, you know, unique personalities and patient load. You know, some of the things that came up like in, we started to attend, we meaning the psych oncology team, started to attend tumor board meetings. So we were there with the surgeons and radiation oncology okay. and PT and OT and the whole team to decide people's treatment options. Yeah. And so I would be the one who would sometimes, you know, irreverently say things like, wait, 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 say that again. You're going to remove this person's tumor and then they won't be able to smell anything ever again. You know, have we really have we really talked about this with the patient and what kind of quality of life that's going yeah. to produce? Oh my so, gosh, I see all these things on TikTok. You people should know how desperately addicted to TikTok I am. Uh, I don't <laughs> post anything. I'm just a consumer of TikTok. But the, but I don't know how I got onto this. But all these people who have just permanent smell and taste loss mm -hmm. from, from COVID, COVID. Yeah. and just how depressed and how miserable they are. Like things that used to take, like food is, is such a part of being a human. Yeah. yeah. It's and, huge. And like unbelievable to think that, oh, well, you can just take that out mm -hmm. and you can just live like normal mm -hmm. or someone who has an ostomy and then mm -hmm. just all the stuff that goes along with like, well, you're still alive. You should yes. be grateful and yeah. thankful for all of this. And yeah, yeah. There, there's a layer of sort of toxic positivity and the default answer in oncology being we can cure you. Yeah. And that's the gold standard. That's what we aim for. That's what we should be grateful for. And so I love getting in there and digging around with treatment team and especially patients with well, what was the cost of that and what's the quality of sure. your life? and being a really informed consumer of what your options are. And I think because our culture is so, you know, cure, 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 and do everything available, I think there should just be more pause and conversations about what does this really look like? And I think when you're in it and you're thinking about the clinical options, you don't even think about the quality of life because your, your job as that surgeon is to save this yeah. life, or to yeah. get it all, get the tumor. You know, your, your thought is recurrence, your thought is where are the margins, but to think about what the patient lives with afterwards and think about survivorship, yeah, it, it's, I've always found it fun and interesting to have those conversations. Well, and I would argue an equal part of the process and very important to 
someone's overall health and overall kind of well-being after that type of treatment like mm -hmm. i mean we've cut your arms and your legs off and you're still alive so you know be thankful it's like well what i can't do anything that i used to do anymore mm -hmm. so is this really living absolutely that is where i live yeah the existential meaning making that is the best most fun part to me yeah and to me when you get down to life or death quality of life your goals how your treatment whatever that may be is going to impact your life to me that's when we get down to like really good work yeah. that's where the good work happens like the essence of mental health yeah honestly yeah. what does your life mean to you now yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what, what's a new norm? How do you come to terms with this? How do you make a meaning of this terrible experience? Mm -hmm. That's the part about cancer. It's not just cancer. This, this, you know, this conversation happens all the time in different contexts, but that's what I love about working with cancer patients. And I love all the layers of gunk that our culture has put onto cancer, that there's yeah. that to work through too, for better or for worse. Everybody has an image of what cancer means sure. to them. And so when you get a cancer diagnosis and you're going through treatment, everybody around you has their own response based on their personal experiences related to the C word, cancer. Cancer's like a thousand different diseases. Yeah. and processes and treatments and clinical trials. I mean, just keeping up with the treatments that are available through clinical trial is nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. So we think of it as like this big C thing, but it's such a huge variety of experiences. And I've had plenty of patients who people stopped believing them that they even had cancer because they outlived their prognosis. Crazy things happen to people in, in the cancer world. That like they just, sense. they tire of this person having stage four cancer and they just don't believe them anymore. People truly get abandoned because huh. they don't fit. You the... lived longer than what yeah. we thought you were doing. Yeah. yeah. So we don't you know were... what to do with you. We anymore. don't know what to do with you. We thought you were dying and we knew how to rally behind you when we thought you were dying, but you're living, but you're really sick mm -hmm. and you still have, the... people don't know what to do with that. And so the support around that or lack of support is huge. So you mentioned earlier that there's not a lot of programs like that for people who experience cancer. That's really fascinating to me and hard to believe, honestly, that that seems obviously our wheelhouse is to think about those kinds of things. But it really seems interesting to me that that would not be something that would just be standard care mm -hmm. that you get a cancer diagnosis and then you get referred to a surgeon and, and somebody who's going to treat that from you know physical perspective but that you get connected with mental health as well i don't know why that's just not standard practice that that's fascinating to me that this doesn't seem to be something that is just across the board best practice well let me think carefully about how to respond to that so there are programs in large cancer centers that provide very holistic wraparound patient services sure, sure. and there is a uh, professional society. The American Psychosocial Oncology Society, APOS, is the professional organization okay. for this work. And that's a large, really active group. But I could count on one hand the number of psychiatrists and psych NPs that I've met in that organization. Because most cancer centers, if they are providing patient support, it is social work or sure. it's psychology. Yeah. So there are services 
but it looks really different across different oncology settings and it's in large part it's not psychiatry and the flip side the other piece of that is we don't make money but you can bill for services yeah but if you think about oncology and the economics of that yeah these kind of fluffy we were called i'll tell the term that the first cancer center that I worked in called us was a lost leader, which just that makes meant, you feel good. I know. And, and it, we were really supported by that organization. But that term meant we really care about this and we're going to continue to offer it because we think it's important, but you don't make us any money. That's horrible. I, I know. There's so much culturally around patient support. And again, in oncology, which it, it is a revenue producing service line that's dark it it is and i'm not saying that that medical centers are only going to provide what is making money but if you think about an entire program or service line or a center the work in growing something or building something probably isn't going to be in the you know quote unquote lost leaders so you it takes commitment on the part of an institution to just say we're going to provide this because it matters not because it's bringing us a lot of money yeah because our patients do better when our patients do better yeah Yeah. everybody benefits from this and our patients benefit from it and there are fewer visits to the the ed but it's not bringing in the revenue that like you know medical oncology brings in or radiation oncology i wonder if that's because they're comparing it to that but if they looked at it as standard psychiatric practice, would, and I don't know, I'm completely speaking out of no knowledge whatsoever of how how hospitals run and their budgets and those kinds of things. But I'm wondering if it's just being compared to the wrong thing. I don't know. Well, and I also think you make an excellent point that there's outpatient psychiatry and we can look very clearly at the financials right and see that we can produce revenue for an institution our students are going to do that in this class right they're going to demonstrate when you're in a hospital setting you're under the umbrella of a hospital particularly a medical hospital you're speaking a different language and that's one of the challenges of being in a setting like this is that you're not very understood being mental health and psychiatry in a medical setting. People don't always understand what your needs are in terms of what your practice involves, how you differ from other medical providers, and they don't really understand the billing either. And so that was something that was instilled in me in my first role. I didn't want, you know, I was a new NP and I was, had a straight up and down vertical learning curve, learning the psych NP role and learning oncology. And I didn't care about the billing. I didn't want to be bothered with billing. And if we were making money, I just thought it would, I just thought it didn't matter. Yeah. And the psychiatrist who joined our team was really adamant that we take ownership of our billing and that basically our billing codes would be sent to the billing department who managed all the billing mm-hmm. in that center. And we were just small potatoes to them. So they weren't chasing our billing. So we were a loss leader, but that's because they just weren't staying on top of getting payment for our services. Yeah. So that you mentioned, you know, is it in comparison? Well, yeah, it is. And because we're small potatoes, they weren't being very aggressive about pursuing billing. And so we just kind of stayed in the red perpetually. So anyway, it was one of her sticking points to start meeting with billing regularly to say, how much have you recouped? This is what we billed for. How much did you actually collect? Because nobody was doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just happy to pay for us and continue to call us a loss leader. But you know what happens when funding and programs get cut? What gets cut? 
The ones who don't make money. Yeah. So, yeah. And she knew that. She was a seasoned provider and knew, you may not want to care about this, but we have to. Because Very forward of, thinking yeah, about what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Yeah. You have to believe in the bottom line as well as the mission. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes, because you have to keep the doors open in order to provide the services that you know is really helpful and meaningful. And I know sometimes that, like, mm-hmm. that's not what I want to think about. I don't want to be like, la, 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 nine, nine, two, one, whatever. Like, uh-huh. who cares? Like, I, I just saw my patient... And I want to provide good care to them. Mm-hmm. But you do have to think about those things in context of, you know, American healthcare is revenue driven, privatized. And if it doesn't make money, it's going to get chopped. And that's wrong in a lot of ways. But it, it's just kind of the reality of it. For sure. Yeah. That and- same psychiatrist, she would call me an idealist. <laughs> and it made me angry. I felt a little defensive about that label yeah. and title. I don't so much anymore, and I see where she was coming from and how she meant that. And it's true. At that point, I was. I was concerned with providing the best patient experience and meeting the patient's needs. And I don't know. I guess I thought money, you know, just appeared from from the institution way back then. Yeah. But but she had a lot of really good pearls and wisdom to bring to our idealistic patient mission, too. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I always thought about when I first started is I can't think about anything that happens outside of this office. I can only think about what's going on in here and what's going on with my patient right now. I can't think about big healthcare problems or billing issues or why aren't people getting reminder phone calls. Right. Like I have to think about what's going on right here and now because that's what the priority is and that's kind of what I'm focusing on. And I think once you've been out a while, the day-to-day work that you do, not that it, it ever becomes less important, but you don't have to think as hard all the time about the things that you're going to do. And you can multitask much better because you've got your sea legs under you. And it's much easier to know how am I going to treat this individual and then start thinking about, okay, how do I improve practice? How do I make sure that we can keep the doors open? How do I... All those kinds of things Mm -hmm. that we end up having to think about as advanced practice nurses because we are leaders in the healthcare system. As much as we may not want to think about all those businessy kinds of things, it was like, I just want to do patient care and I just want to help people. But like, yeah, you got to think about ledger lines and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. The system that you're working in and what are the limitations? What are the resources and what are the limitations within that? And just being aware. And yeah, as a brand new provider, your head is not there at all. Unless you're coming in with some in your former life before this program, because you all have that. Yeah. Unless you have that business or systems experience, it's enough to learn the patient care role and, Mm. and what like you said, your task is, what is my code for this encounter? Yeah. And that's a lot you yeah. know, to process as a new provider. But yeah, as you work in a system for a while or you work in a variety of settings, you kind of realize, okay, you have to learn how to function within these mm-hmm. systems given the constraints of what's available to you. Yeah. Given that you had so much to kind of process, so you had the mental health side, but then you also were trying to learn cancer Cancer. and how complicated (laughs) that yeah all the cancers and all this kind of like really complex medical things how long did it take you before you felt confident you felt good i've made the analogy so many times that your analogy like the actual literal truth of me waking up in the middle of the night panicked about something that i did that day yeah how long did it take you before that didn't happen anymore 
I would say six months to a year before I felt pretty solid in what I was doing day to day, but they're working with patients who are medically complex and doing consult liaison. There were always things that I was like, I don't know what to do. And so I think one of the things I learned really early was it's okay not to know. And I share this with my supervision students. One of my biggest pieces of advice to new grads is to remove the sense of urgency that you're going to see patients who are in a lot of suffering you're going to see patients who come in with a sense of urgency they want to feel better at the end of that appointment and if we take our time and use therapeutic communication skills they often do just Mm -hmm. by way of telling their story and having time to sit with someone But we may need time to order labs or to talk to another provider or to phone a friend and say, I don't know which of these medications to choose because I have these two issues here. This one's going to cause GI distress. This one potentially has QT prolongation. And given this person's overall state of health, I need to talk that through with somebody else on the team. And so I learned really quickly to remove the sense of urgency. And if I didn't know the best route, the best thing to do is just say, I'm going to talk this over, you know, with the oncologist who referred you to me or with your surgeon. And I'll call you in a day or two with instructions for a prescription or I'll get you back in to discuss your options. But I felt like a failure early on not knowing the answer right away. I felt like I needed to have an answer Mm -hmm. right now. And I think with more time, I've realized there could be three right answers. And any of those are just fine, but also involving someone else in the conversation is often the right answer. And so not to feel, and that is somewhat specific to that role of working with patients who are very sick, doing consult liaison, where someone has consulted you on this patient. And it took me a while to feel okay with that. There were always things that I didn't know about the patients and the diseases that would show up. Sure. And so I would frequently call the referring oncologist and say, "What? I don't know what this treatment is. Yeah. I'm reading the chart and I'm reading that they're coming in for day three of the, I don't know what that is. Can you tell me what that is? What is that about? So just feeling okay, asking a lot of questions, that's still, you know, how I practice. I need to know, for sure. I need to know more information, For sure. but I think it took me a long time to get okay with that and to know that's not a a weakness right in in your training or a weakness in you as a person or a provider because you can't know everything and that's been this ongoing theme to everyone i've talked to is have a network of people Mm -hmm. and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to run things by someone because that's just good medicine Mm -hmm. we're better when we work together rather than in isolation And that's just, you hit the nail on the head that the super complex patient who has all of these medical illnesses and all this really complex stuff going on, like you're not going to know everything and it's not possible to know everything. And it's pretty arrogant to think that you do know everything a lot of times. And so I love that. I went in and talked to the psychiatrist yesterday who I work with. I'm like, I got to run something by you because you know, I feel like I'm missing something here. And it was super valuable and really, really helpful to be able to do that. So we all still do that all the time. Yeah. I th- and I think to your point in that conversation too, that, you know, we, we talked to our students about this. There's a lot of gray in psychiatry. There mm-hmm. are, there's some black and white, but most of it's gray. And a lot of it boils down to risk benefit, right? There is no answer A is the right answer. Sure. It's 
what are my options here and what seems like the most feasible at this time and also what matches the patient's goals what does this patient need at this time and what are they willing to explore for a treatment option yeah i think as a new provider all that is hard because you feel like you should have the one right answer because that's what school teaches you mm -hmm. to do, right? Is to pick the one right answer. Hopefully, especially through clinical supervision, we get that point across that there are many potential right answers in a lot of cases. Human behavior is infinitely unpredictable. Yeah, absolutely. And their responses to things. Mm -hmm. Just when I think everyone does great with Prozac, that person tanked on Prozac and did awful on Prozac. And so it very much is being okay with knowing that there's going to be plan B, C, D, E, F, G, double R at some point. Mm -hmm. How are NPs viewed in the kind of psycho onk world? I know you said that you said you can count on one hand the number of people that you've that, that do this kind of work, but how are the NPs viewed in that setting in, in the context of a collaborative team with medical profet like physical medical professionals and then these mental health professionals as well? That is a really complicated question because I think it depends on the team. Okay. I will say generally in terms of the psych onk community, like we're talking about that professional organization, people don't really get what we can bring to the table. I think psychology and social work is well understood. I think palliative care is becoming better understood. Yeah. I think people don't really understand where we fall in that the world in between those worlds. Sure. And in fact, there's a lot of discussion or questions about, well, what does psychiatry do that palliative care doesn't do? Mm. Which is interesting because if you're in other psych settings, palliative care isn't even a part of the equation. Yeah. But in oncology, there's the supportive services and then there's the prescribing to treat side effects and physical experiences or the physical components of the cancer experience and that's usually oncology and more so hopefully now palliative care and so there is a lot of work to be done in terms of defining the psych np role and how we fit in between those yeah. and how we can really elevate everyone else's practice by specializing in psychiatric conditions or symptoms through the cancer experience and we collaborate really well with social work and psychologists and medical oncology and palliative care. Yeah. Um, but palliative care, they're not going to sit down and do a psychiatric diagnostic interview. That's not their, that's sure. not their role. They may be focused on sleep and pain, which I might be focused on too, but they're not going to have the diagnostic component that we have as psych NPs. And I think that's where we really have to explain our value. We're like C3PO. We speak a lot of the different languages. languages. We can communicate with a lot Absolutely. of different people. And we're a bridge. Absolutely. We're a bridge yeah. between so many different specialties and roles. And you don't always need to psych NP. I think that's the other thing that comes up is that in oncology, you can have providers who are really quick to use a team approach and they'll consult. Yeah, I'm going to consult GI. I'm going to consult neuro. I'm going to consult psych. I'm going to consult palliative care. And you have other oncology providers who feel very proud of managing all the things. Yeah. These are my patients and I'm going to take care of them and I'm going to make sure they're sleeping and that they're eating and that they're not depressed and that they're not in pain. And taking on all of that within one role doesn't often go very well, mm -hmm. or at least without some consultation. And so I think that's where we come in. But you have to be open to that idea of using a team approach. And not everyone is. Yeah, that's really sad. 
really interesting. I was struck when you said there's the oncology team and then there's the palliative care team. It's like going back to, well, we saved your life. What are you upset about versus, well, you're dying. So we understand you need to be comfortable and die with dignity and those kinds of things. It's just so the living part with cancer is just, we saved you like end of story done the end period paragraph. And that's so interesting to me that, that there's that kind of mindset. One of the people that I worked most closely with in the hospital in my role in Psyconc was actually the hospital chaplain and director of palliative care, one in the same. She yeah. was a chaplain and director of palliative care at the hospital. And we, again, worked really well together. I think because we understood the value in quality of life and looking at the whole person, we understood how we worked together but had separate roles. Other people sometimes blurred that all into the same. Like, yeah. this is the fluffy stuff. This is the talking about hard things stuff. Which one do I consult? Mm -hmm. Well, this person's already on the case, so this person isn't needed. So there was a lot of education around, well, this is what we do, and this is what they do, but then this is how we all work together. And sometimes we would have family meetings where all of us were present in sure. the hospital with the patient. But you have to be open to seeing all the different services and needs and not just focused on, well, there's treating the cancer and then there's whatever comes after that. Mm -hmm. And I would think that a, a decent part of your job was educating other providers and other team members on what your role is, what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. Sometimes mm -hmm. importantly, what it isn't versus what it is. Yeah. My favorite consults were, there was one person who would give me a 3 p.m. on a Friday urgent it would go in as an urgent consult and it would be for smoking cessation for a patient he was going to operate on on monday and what <laughs> what the expectation was is that this person would be tobacco free by for 48 hours by their surgery on monday oh well, that's going to change a lot so so there was such a range yeah. there were you know capacity assessments in the hospital there were delirium consults there were new diagnosis, there were smoking cessation. And so there was a lot of education around, this is what I can do. These are the ways that I can assist you and support you. And then this is really not mm -hmm. a realistic use of the service. But I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of, there's the work you do with patients face to face, but there was so much of my job that was just relationship building outside of my interactions with patients just to understand the people that I was working with better and for them to trust me because they weren't going to consult me if they didn't trust me. Sure. And so building that trust was probably, you know, even a bigger part of my job than what I was doing or just as big as what I was doing with patients. Yeah. Convincing other people. Yeah. What I can bring and mm -hmm. that you trust me enough to send your patient to me. Yeah. You are now transitioning into a different kind of practice mm -hmm. for lots of reasons, pandemic and family reasons and those kinds of things. But briefly talk about what you envision and what you hope your future practice looks like. Yeah, so I can go back a couple of steps in that working in an integrated setting, it's really ideal in my mind in terms of the way I like to practice. I like to be able to consult the endocrine team. I mm -hmm. like to be able to read the note from this person, read about the treatment plan and see the lab. So in my mind, that's really an ideal setup for yeah. someone who's working with medically complex patients. There's also a lot of difficulties that can come with that when you're in a large system, what the support is like. We talked earlier about how do people 
understand your practice and what your needs are to be successful in your practice and what your patients need when you look so different from everyone else on the team. Sure. And so those are the challenges. So like you said, for a lot of different reasons for life, moving into private practice where I have more autonomy in the patient experience mm-hmm. and hope to still serve this patient population in a private practice setting where I just don't have some of the red tape that was taking a lot of my time and energy. Yeah. If your system doesn't understand or value what you do within that team, it's really hard to get the frontline support that you need to be able to provide that service. And it's hard when you see, okay, somebody in a comparable role, but in a different specialty has all these layers in place. But when you're coming in as a psych NP to an integrated kind of medical setting, you're often starting from scratch. And so it takes a lot of physician championing and money and resources Mm -hmm. and really people backing the program to get what you need to be able to provide patient care. And as a full-time faculty person, I don't have the time and energy to continue advocating for things that should be in place. Yeah. So in private practice, it's less than ideal in some ways when you're working with patients outside of their primary team. But also you get to make a lot of decisions about how long you sit with this person who Mm -hmm. is dealing with end-of-life issues. And there's some value, honestly. It's hard to admit because I love the integrated model and I like being right there with all the cancer stuff that's happening. But it can be pretty traumatic for patients to come into the cancer center where they have gotten chemo and thrown up for three months. Um, So I've heard that over the years from multiple cancer center settings that patients really want a place that's not attached to their cancer treatment to be able to go to process and to heal. So I'm excited. It doesn't smell like a hospital. Yeah. The smell, truly, I would have patients who would get nauseous coming in the building because it triggered the paired association with their chemo treatments. Absolutely. I literally was down the hall from the infusion center. Yeah. In my most recent setting, I was in the hall with the exam rooms. And so it's very, very triggering Mm -hmm. for patients. They get really anxious. Other Both of the settings I was in, they're big, you know, metropolitan hospitals. And so there's parking and there's the valet and there's the getting on the elevator with the other sick people. And so there are a lot of barriers to coming to a mental health appointment when you're embedded in that setting. So physical space matters. And I'm excited about that part that it's a more healing environment and there's no 10 car valet to wait on and there's no... Or how the heck do I even get to this place? Because it's in this giant building and there's 400 floors. You and I were talking the other day and I ended up in the morgue one time when I was trying to find, I was just going to get a physical from this dude. And I I ended up in the morgue and this guy's like smoking on the back deck with a bunch of corpses. And he's like, you're lost, aren't you? I'm like, yes, I'm very much lost. Get me out of here. One of my last appointments in the hospital setting, there was a code outside of my office while I had a really distressed patient in the room. Well, that's just going to calm them right down, isn't it? So it's just, again, it it is great in a lot of ways to be there, but for patients who are really distressed, particularly patients who no longer have to go there for treatment, they don't want to come back. Yeah. The ideal is that you're consolidating care for the patient, and so you're going to do radiology, and you're going to do your oncologist appointment, and you're going to do your psych onc appointment all on the same day while you're here. That very rarely worked out that people could do that with their schedules. When it does, it's great because you just have all your appointments consolidated for one time. But the other piece of that is, okay, I'm coming in for a third time to this cancer center where I don't want to be, where I'm reminded that I have cancer Mm -hmm. and I have the smells and the sounds 
and all the triggers of this disease and literally maybe sometimes seeing patients in a closet. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there's that. So yeah, serving the same patient population, but with more healing space and environment and also just more autonomy and frontline support staff. You and I've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't have good gatekeepers, your patient care activities take up a lot more of your time. And so you got to work smarter, not harder. Yeah, absolutely. What do you wish you had known when you first started practicing that you could go back in time and tell your noob self? What do you wish you had known? You were good at this. Thanks. That's what I would have said to myself. Yeah. Yeah, you were good at this. Like, trust, trust yourself. Oh, you were answering the question. You weren't. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's really but it, funny. There's a double meaning. That's you are hilarious. good at no, this. No, no, God, that was my ego coming out. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> it's there's a double double answer there. Okay. You are good at this. Yeah, it's just trust yourself. You can edit all that out. Trust yourself. No, I'm keeping it in because it makes me <laughs> sound like an idiot. I love it. <laughs> I am all about self self deprecating and like keeping my ego in check. Oh my god! We, we all we all need to be shut down every but it once is, in a while. It is one hundred percent true. Yeah, you are good at this, Matt. And you are good at this too. And and less less than I am good at this, but to trust myself, I I think that's my default anyway. Just as a person, mm. and my own sort of stuff is like, do I know the answer? I assume everyone else has the answer. Yeah. And as a new provider, I just think. That if I didn't have the answer right away, I think it, it made me feel like there was something wrong with my ability to make that decision rather than there's just three possible answers here. Mm -hmm. And it honestly, it took some supervision with the psychiatrist to realize like, oh, I've shared this with my supervision group. I remember very vividly some supervision sessions where I laid out my treatment plan for this patient. I'm going to start a fixer and here, here are my reasons. Yeah. And she was like, oh, that's not what I would have done. And I immediately, I, I like couldn't sleep that night and thought, wow, you idiot. How could you have chosen a fixer when she would have chosen Wellbutrin? And that's clearly, she mm -hmm. clearly has the right answer. And you clearly have the new, don't know what you're doing answer. Well, guess what? The patient did really well on a fixer. So just trusting yourself that yeah. You are well-trained. You are listening to your patients. Follow your gut in some of these instances, too. And so that's what I would say to, to new me, new provider me, and that's what I would say to our students as they're new. Yeah. Trust yourself. Listen. Ask questions and listen and take the feedback. But if you feel strongly about something, maybe don't back down just because somebody else doesn't agree with you. Yeah. But you are good enough. Yeah, you're good enough. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's great. And I'm a wonderful podcaster. And you're host. a wonderful podcaster. <laughs> you are good. Oh, that's really funny. No, I'm not. That's hilarious. So to segue into now that I know that you at one point were going to be a professional musician. You have to edit all that out. No, too. it's staying. It is absolutely staying. <laughs> No one's going to make you sing, no. but maybe we should start a band because Mary Carter plays guitar and sings too. We have so many musical talents. I know. We should start like a nursing school band. Yeah. It would be so fun. We should totally do I'm it. I'm totally into yes. that. Yes. So talk me through music playlists. What makes you think of this work? What helps you to unwind? What speaks to you from a mental health standpoint and music? Okay. I, this is my favorite question okay. in the list that you sent because I love music mm -hmm. and I have different kinds of answers to this question. So what gets me out of my own head and helps me relax and also connect to my family is we do lots of dance parties in the kitchen. 
And I say we, it's really me and my 18-month-old and sometimes the little mini-me of you. Yeah, but yes. definitely not my husband. He is not, he is like watching and judging for sure. <laughs> but I love good dance music. So, and I'm a child of the 80s, so I love like a good 90s R&B like Whitney Houston was blasting in my car this morning. Though that's great dance She's music. She's a legend. She is a legend. Nobody compares. That's great dance music. Mm -hmm. Scarlett does a little shimmy. She likes to dance with me. I love 80s like power ballads. So a Journey station or REO Speedwagon. Like Ellen and I foreigner. cranked Living on a Prayer on the way home oh, yes. the other day. We had the it's windows rolled down. It was great. How can you not be happy? Yeah. How can you not be happy listening to those like big 80s ballads? I like, went, to, I bought tickets for my wife to see Pink and we drove to Indianapolis to see Pink. And if you haven't seen Pink, like you should see Pink. Her show is incredible. I bet it is. Like she flies around the stadium uh, and it's like fire everywhere and all kinds of cool yeah. stuff. But before they had a DJ who was just like playing music and they played Living on a Prayer, the entire arena was belting it out at the top of their lungs. It, it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. It was so yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Yes, so I'm all into the cheesy, like big 80s ballads, 90s R&B. It's so much fun. And, okay, so I have a different direction for your question about what makes me think about mental health. Or what do I enjoy listening to? Yes. There are a couple of um, songs that I think just so perfectly hit the nail on the head with like topics that we deal with in mental health. So the, <laughs> I just splashed water everywhere. The first is Jason Isbell's Anxiety. Yep, yep. It is just the most poetic description of anxiety mm -hmm. and panic that I've ever heard. I would agree with that, yeah. Every time I hear it, I think I just want to play it to every single one of my patients who comes in and says, like, everything, I shouldn't be anxious, but I just am. Sure. Like, things are good. I have reasons to be happy. Same is true for depression. People will say that. My yeah. life is good, but I don't know why I feel this way. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful representation of anxiety. I would agree, yeah. And then for my work in psycho-oncology, Taylor Swift, Soon You'll Get Better. And, and also another Jason Isbell, Elephant, which is about dying of cancer and dying alone. And that, that is a really common theme um, among cancer patients is that we talked about everybody else around you's response to cancer. A lot of people don't really um, have the capacity to go there when it comes to death and dying discussions. Sure. And so patients can get really isolated when they're at the end of life. Yeah. Yeah. Those so that was a, we went from way high to way low. <laughs> no, but I think that's the work that we do sometimes is we walk alongside people at their high points and some of their low points too. Hopefully you start at the low points and end at the high points, but that's life. Mm -hmm. Like life is not always awesome and life is sometimes hard. And that's just the reality of what we do and, and understanding that. And I think celebrating that sometimes too, that People go through lots of problems and lots of issues, but you can get better and you can do better from this. This has been so fun. I've learned things about you that I didn't know before. <laughs> You're coming to the next dance party. Okay. Well, no, you don't want you. My <laughs> okay. wife will come and John and I will stand in the corner. And, judge. and yes. Okay, yes. Fine. <laughs> I fine. won't judge you at all. I promise. <laughs> I promise. But this has been so great. You are one of my favorite people. You are so smart and have always such great things to say. Aww. And I think you do really important work and you do great work with our students. And they're so lucky to have you. 
And you're just an awesome team member and friend, and I'm just glad that we know each other. Oh, me too, Matt. And you are a really good podcaster. I'm putting that on the record. You are a really good podcaster. It's just, it's my, it's my deep desire to, uh, to be good at this. I don't know. Who knows? But it's been, like, honestly, it's been everyone that I've talked to who's made this really incredible and that includes you and so thank you so much for doing it and hopefully everybody enjoys it and it's a a cool way to absorb some content in ways that are not staring at a computer or sitting in a lecture hall or that kind of thing absolutely beyond the powerpoint slides yes yes so thank you thank you thank you this was great this was so much fun yes bye everybody bye